This is a podcast from 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Hello, I'm Simon Moore. Welcome to In Conversation on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. On today's programme, I'm delighted to welcome to the studio a British keyboardist and director with a very long list of credits to his name. Chad Kelly has been living in Australia less than two years, but has already performed with the Australian Chamber Orchestra, the Victorian Opera, and with the Sydney and Tasmanian Symphony Orchestras, and earlier this year joined Opera Australia. His commitment to historically informed performance practice has had him perform with Sir John Elliot Gardner and Trevor Pinnock, and his enduring collaboration with violinist Rachel Podger has led them to record an album together of J.S. Bach's Goldberg Variations, due for release next year. He's in Sydney to guest direct the Australian Haydn Ensemble for CPE Bach, Universe of Harmony, their final concert of the year from the 11th to the 14th of December. And I'm delighted that he's taken time out to be in conversation with me today. Chad Kelly, a very warm welcome to 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Hi, Simon. Thanks for having me today. Now, I know that the Australian Haydn Ensemble doesn't just play Haydn, but I have to say this upcoming concert doesn't seem to have any. Can you tell us about how this program fits into the overall Haydn era? Uh, well, Haydn, we might associate as being one of the foremost composers from the classical era. And this program explores lots of repertoire and indeed composers from what you might describe as the pre-classical era and so within it we've got lots of the building blocks and lots of the foundations which laid then uh, lead of course to lots of the repertoire we now associate with the classical era. C.P. Bach despite today being uh, known primarily as the son of the great J.S. Bach um, at the time when he was living C.P. Bach was incredibly famous and, in fact, far overshadowed his own father in terms of fame and uh, notoriety. And he was particularly famous for a couple of things. Firstly, uh, a treatise, a book he wrote on the art of playing the keyboard, but also the musical um, ideas and the musical style that he developed while um, in the service of Frederick the Great in Berlin. Berlin was a very important musical centre and Frederick the Great was a great patron of the arts and himself was a fine flute player. And it was in this breeding ground that C.P. Bach and other composers that we find on the programme, uh, including Georg Bender and, in fact, indeed, Telemann, all had associations with this musical centre. So in that respect, it's all very nicely tied in and linked. However what you'll discover in this program is that they all have a very individual voice and something very individual to say. Mm. So how would you describe C.P. Bach's voice? I mean, you, you, t- you talked about kind of, you didn't say early classical, you actually said pre-classical, is that, is that right? Yeah, um, so C.P. Bach is uh, largely associated with the Empfinsamer style, um, which translates from German roughly as a sort of a sensitive style, mm. um, which is supposed to be very reflective of natural human moods and states and feelings. And so his music is always um, very direct and is always in touch with human emotions. And as such, shows very sudden changes in emotion and mood and has very extreme representations of mood, uh, which would lead in turn to the sort of the Sturm und Drang style, mm. 
um, which translates as sort of storm and stress. And so you'll find lots of contrasts of mood, contrasts of style, and it makes for very exciting listening. Mm. Now, I know that, you know, it wasn't, you know, the 31st of December, Happy New Year, and congratulations, everyone. We're now in the classical era, not the Baroque era. But how, how do we mark the transition between the two eras? Well, in many ways, when we look back at history, it's very useful to have sort of events and um, names of events to hang terms on, um, as it were. And you could associate uh, the whole period of the Enlightenment um which included lots of really quite seismic changes in in social and political and musical spheres. And this very much led to uh, the classical era. Um, things were turning away from the church, uh, which had dominated uh, musical inspiration for hundreds of years, and turning to things like science and minds were open and eyes were cast forwards looking ahead into mm. the future. Now, one of the other interesting names on the programme that, that sort of struck me as a, as a bit of an amateur astronomer uh, was William Herschel, because I, I think of him as the discoverer, discoverer of the planet Uranus uh, or Uranus or whatever pronunciation we want to choose. I didn't know he was also a, a composer. Yeah, in fact, it was probably his one of his main loves. Uh, and he spent a large part of his career, in fact, as a musician. Um, while German-born and with the name Herschel, you can expect uh, his German heritage, he spent a large part of his time in the northeast of England, um, working with uh, as a violinist in the orchestra of Charles Avison, who people might recognise as a name of a composer. But yeah, so William Herschel... It sort of really represents characters from this time. They were not just musicians. And it really makes us remember that composers and characters from this time had personalities and were very much polymaths, many of them. Mm. And they were sort um, of artisans in every sense exactly, of the word. Exactly, exactly. So mm. while we know him today as the discoverer of planets and of other scientific advances... Um, at the time, he enjoyed very much writing music and performing music. And in fact, what's really interesting is that he spent a large part of his career working with military bands, both in the northeast of England and also in the south. And in his music, you can hear this, what, what I couldn't quite make, make head or tail of it. I didn't quite understand the music. And suddenly when I discovered this about him, everything made sense because it... The way that it's structured and the way that it sounds, it's almost like this military band music, but through the eyes of an astronomer with a very wide outlook, with this very distinctive artistic voice. Mm. Okay, well, I think we have to have a bit of music now, a little bit of preview of the, uh, the concert, if, uh, if I may. And uh, you've chosen, well, a bit of, of C.P. Bach, funnily enough. What, what have you got for us first? Uh, well, this is the final movement from his cello concerto in A major, which we're going to be playing with uh, Daniel Yaden, the principal cellist of the Australian Heine Ensemble and uh, a large figure in the historically informed performance scene here in Australia generally. Uh, but on this particular recording, we have the English concert uh, directed by Andrew Manzi with the cellist Alison McGillivray. Thank you. 
and Maggie Livray, the soloist with the English concert directed by Andrew Manzi, the final movement of C.P. Bach's Cello Concerto, the first choice of my guest in conversation today, Chad Kelly. He's in Sydney to guest direct the Australian Haydn Ensemble for C.P. Bach, Universe of Harmony, from the 11th to the 14th of December. Now, that cellist Chad that we just heard then is someone that I think you're quite familiar with, isn't she? Uh, well, she's a colleague that I've worked with on a number of times um, back in the UK, as part of the ensemble Brecken Baroque, which is led by the violinist Rachel Podger. And um, we've played music together in the past, and so it was lovely to find her name on the CD wrapper. Well, while you're an aficionado of period keyboards now, you would have started out on a, a modern piano, I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah, um, like a lot of musicians, um, and like a lot of musicians back in the era of C.P. Bach, um, it was a family trade. Uh, both my parents were musicians, uh, both were pianists in some sort of form, and it was through their uh, lead, by their lead, that I first encountered and started playing the piano. Um, but I'd say probably my first, or one of my most formative musical experiences as a youngster was in fact singing in a choir, singing in the cathedral choir in Manchester. And while at the time it just seemed like the thing you did and the job that you did, because it was really a job, singing seven services a week. Seven? Seven services a week um, in the evenings. Um, it sort of used, While at the time it sort of seemed just the thing you did, certainly looking back on it now, there's so much that I learned both musically and socially about how to interact and how to um, collaborate and how to be as part of a bigger whole when making music. And um, I have very fond memories of lots of repertoire from this time, including the piece that you'll hear shortly. Great. Well, because that's the thing about choral music. I mean, it does teach you so much, almost more, as you're saying, it's, it's like the, it, it, it's teaching you about music in a way that sort of starting straight off on the piano doesn't quite, doesn't it? No, I mean, music uh, for me is uh, about communication and mm. collaboration. Uh, both collaboration with uh, fellow performers and also communication with other performers, but crucially also then communication with a larger audience and inviting them in to share with you that journey. So when do you discover the the more period keyboard? How does that come about? Well, it was in my time as a chorister in the cathedral when often you'd be accompanied by the organ in the organ loft and it was always fascinating because it was high up and it was far away and there were lots of stops and there was a light on and it, it looked like some sort of cockpit. Um, <laughs> yes, lots, yet, lots and lots of buttons. <laughs> yeah, but yet it sort of had this overarching and overwhelming um, capacity to paint and to give lots of different colours. And it was then that I decided to learn the organ as well. And... Organ music is was characterised by um, lots of composers in the Baroque era in particular, and in particular the music of Bach. 
Um, and it was then that I sort of began to encounter that music and start appreciating it in a slightly different way. So when you start to learn the organ, um, I mean, it's more than a piano. You've got all the stops and you've got the foot pedals and so on. So, so how does that kind of evolve? I mean, because you can't, you can't give a loud and soft on the organ without, without you know, changing the, all, the, all the stops, can you? Um, well, not necessarily. Oh, okay. um, but, and people would level the same claim at the harpsichord, which, of course, doesn't have the, uh, the action which permits when you play something harder, it sounds louder. But there are ways of achieving musical shape um, with these instruments both the organ and the harpsichord and that can be using time and it can be using touch and so it really forces you to use these devices both time and touch in a in a way that you you don't have to often on the piano and so it really just makes you think about exactly how you're shaping every single phrase um, which is something that lots of period performers spend their lives doing. Does that change how you've played the piano then? Certainly has. Um, in fact, it's um, quite hard to switch from one to the other and to remember exactly what <laughs> instrument you're playing. Uh, but I would certainly say uh, that my piano playing is very much informed now by the way that I play the harpsichord and the way that I play the organ. Interesting. So tell me about the sort of the next steps that you take. I mean... Is it always clear that you're going to make a career out of music? For me, I did try to deny it when I was in my teens and I thought I might have wanted to be a spy. And so oh. at school I took up Russian thinking that I would be a spy like James Bond. Um, but quickly I learned that um, that isn't how you become a spy. Um, probably t telling people is probably the wrong start. Well, <laughs> I, no one told me that, unfortunately. Maybe. So, unfortunately, my career as a spy, at least as you know it, uh, yeah. does did not take place. This might be a double bluff, you know. It could be. It could be, yeah. Moonlighting as a period instrument player, <laughs> travelling across the globe. It could be exactly. with some ulterior motive. See, that's why you wear a tuxedo. Indeed. So you wanted to be a spy, but that didn't work out. But then what was the decision to take? Uh, well, the, I, in, in all honesty, I don't think there really was any... There, there wasn't any active decision. I think it was just always the thing that I knew that was always going to be the thing that I should always do. Now, because when I think of musicians, I mean, pianists um, or keyboard players, I, I'd have to think would perhaps be the most competitive field, uh, aside from probably opera, opera leads. <laughs> How did you find the journey to, to make a career out of it? Well, um, the, the competitive element and certainly the isolationist element of being uh, a, a, key, a piano virtuoso or a violin virtuoso or indeed uh, a solo singer, that competitive aspect and that isolationist aspect had absolutely no interest for me. And I suppose, in a way, that's why I spend my time doing what I do, which is making music with other people, uh, which is something that's very uh, important to me. Well, you touched on this next piece earlier that we're going to, to uh, hear now. Can you tell us a bit more about it? Uh, well, this is a movement from the Mass set by William Byrd in the Renaissance era. And... It's a particular favourite of mine and a memory that I have of it is very clear. And it's a piece that I've carried with me since I was singing as a young boy. And the recording you're about to hear was recorded by uh, a choir and a place that I know quite well, um, 
King's College Cambridge where I was fortunate enough to play the organ for a year and that whole English cathedral choral tradition is something that I feel very blessed to have experienced. Agnus Day from William Bird's Mass for Four Voices, the choir of King's College, Cambridge, there conducted by David Wilcox. And that was the choice of my guest in conversation today, Chad Kelly, who is in Sydney to direct the Australian Haydn Ensemble. So, Chad, the historically performed performance line is bandied about quite a lot nowadays, and you are an exponent of it. It is more than just, you know, playing something on a forte piano or a harpsichord or whatever, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean... There's a nice analogy uh, coined by the author Bruce Haynes where he talks about hardware and software. So the hardware might be the instruments we use, for example, period instruments, forte pianos, harpsichords, violins in, built in the particular, or modelled on particular violins that they would have had at the time bows, uh, violinists' bows, which were very important to give shape to the notes. That's the hardware, that's one element. But then there's also the software, 
which is the appreciation of the way that people used to make music. And our sources for this often are treatises, so works that were written by performers of the time to help instruct and to help educate their own students. And we can use these as a wonderful resource to inform our own playing. So on the one hand, we have hardware and software. Now, to be historically informed, you don't necessarily need the software, just the hardware. But more importantly, I think the software is what gives us the tools, the spirit with which to approach this music. Mm. And in fact, that's probably what I'd sum up um, historically informed performance as most. It's having the right spirit. It's a spirit of invention. It's a spirit of flamboyance. And crucially, it's a spirit of collaboration and communication. So what drew you to that more than appearing in a modern symphony orchestra? I mean, you do play with the the full orchestras with modern instruments, but uh, what draws you to those period instruments? Well, actually, what draws me to it is the music itself and trying to access the true essence of that music. And for me personally, it's accessing it through the use of period instruments and period style which gets me closer, at least I believe, uh, closer to the music and its true essence. Now, I mentioned in the intro that you've got a new album coming out next year. And in fact, uh, the name's come up before because uh, she was associated with Alison McGilvray, who was performing the CP Bach we heard earlier, and that's Rachel Podger. So tell me about about uh, that collaboration, because that's been going on for quite a while, hasn't it? Yeah, I first encountered Rachel when she was guest directing a project at the Royal Academy of Music, which is where I studied. And we struck up a a strong musical bond then and she invited me to come and work with her with her festival with her own orchestra and we share a certain affinity both the way that we like to play music but also the way we like to play music together and also crucially um the music of johann sebastian bach and um it was in fact uh, a lockdown project um everyone has those or at least (laughs) thankfully had those um and she gave me a call one day and said hey would you like to arrange the Goldberg variations and of course the answer was an affirmative and resounding yes and then we spent many months sort of discussing the best way of um, realizing this very famous keyboard piece with very famous uh traditions which we've inherited um and we spent many months trying to discuss how to present it best for her and for me, which felt true to her, me, and also to the music. And we performed it first, live streamed a couple of years ago, and we both made it our aim to finally get it down on disc to share it with the world. (laughs) (laughs) And um, we were fortunate enough to record it a few weeks ago, Uh, back in the UK, and it's due to be released sometime in 2023. So can you tell us about the Goldberg Variations? I mean, it's a sort of a name that's very famous and everybody knows it and everyone knows bits of it, but, but, I mean, why are they called that? Where does does that all come from? Uh, Well, the name was not attached to it by Bach. Goldberg was a keyboardist who we think may have uh, first performed it. Um, but it's a useful name that we attach to a set of um, variations based on a theme which supposedly was requested or was commissioned. Um, and it's really a survey of Bach's musical outlook. Mm. 
So on the one hand, we have Bach's own musical uh, beliefs, which are um, represented by very strict, imitative, canonic writing, which was at the time seen as very old-fashioned. And then on the other hand, we have him looking towards the future and incorporating lots of very contemporary and forward-looking musical styles. And it's a wonderful blend of these two outlooks, both looking towards the past and looking towards the future, summed up with the genius that is Bach and has been popularised quite rightly ever since. Now, I'm curious also that uh, the performance we're about to hear... um uh, is of course not not the one with you and Rachel Podger. It's 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 the one on keyboard. But you've chosen Murray Pariah uh, playing a, a modern piano. So how does that link with the historically performed performance? Can you give an historically performed performance of this on a modern piano? Does that um, work? I th- in a way, I think this is not just about the instrument. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What I was referring to earlier with yeah. the software, I think you can, in a way, have aspects of historically informed performance. However, I'm afraid my choice of Murray Pariah on the piano is a purely nostalgic choice, and it was my first experience of the Goldberg Variations, listening to it in the back of the car, played by my mother, almost on repeat.
the aria from J.S. Bach's Goldberg Variations. The pianist was Murray Pariah, and that was the choice of my guest in conversation today. Keyboardist and musical director Chad Kelly, and his mother apparently made him uh, listen to that on repeat in the car, which, uh, Chad, you were just telling me during that that, uh, well, you then had to inflict it on somebody else, I think. Well, yes, it's a piece that's endured over the years, um, not just from listenings in the car, but it's also one that I had to inflict, yes, upon my, my dear wife, who herself is not a musician, uh, but who I've enjoyed opening her horizons. And in fact, I managed to force her to have it as she walked down the aisle at our wedding. I don't think she would have required much forcing because it's a very beautiful piece, but it's actually a really nice choice, isn't it? I think I think it it's the perfect length. I think length, it's a really nice choice. And I had a friend of mine <laughs> playing it on the piano and it was it's one of those moments where you just smile. Yeah, but isn't it interesting how important certain pieces of music can can become to to you? It it will forever have a link for you yeah. now with that moment in time. Very much, um, and it's a piece that I'll carry with me forever. Well, Chad, one thing we haven't talked about yet is your involvement with opera, which is quite significant. And in fact, I mentioned that at the top of the program that you're actually now part of Opera Australia. What's the role? Um, well, I w- was fortunate enough to be invited to work on the music stuff uh, of Opera Australia last year in the winter season in Sydney and in the winter season in Melbourne. And it follows a long history of me working for opera houses and opera festivals for really the the best part of my professional musical life. Um, I suppose that very much comes from what I've mentioned a few times, Mm. my outlook for music making, which is collaboration and communication. I think that's best summed up in many ways in the world of opera and so has therefore always been a good fit for me. And also plays to a lot of my skills, um, not only my uh, history of singing and working with the voice, but also as a keyboardist, which makes me uh, an invaluable asset to opera houses in the rehearsal room and in the coaching room, and sometimes even in the performances themselves. Hmm. So, so does your um, knowledge of opera expand from the you know the Baroque through to more contemporary? Oh, very much so. Um, And in fact, that's what variety is, the spice of life, as we all know. And the opera theatre offers me the chance to explore lots of repertoire from the very earliest um, foundations of opera to the most contemporary and everything in between. Uh, So, for example, next year, I'm fortunate enough to be working on Opera Australia's new ring cycle, but also I've collaborated with lots of composers, bringing brand new work to the stage. Um, composers and friends such as Thomas Ades and Hans Abrahamson. But then, of course, the seeds of opera, which were sown right back in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries with composers such as Monteverdi. How did opera then evolve from that early era, the Monteverdi era, when they're kind of more oratorios almost, aren't they? Or... or... Well, the ways of rhetorically declaiming text as a way of painting and communicating a narrative. And storytelling is something that all nations and all peoples have had throughout the ages. And opera was just one form of codifying and finding a new way of telling stories. So I'd say that the seeds of opera were sown when 
artists of the Renaissance began looking back hundreds and hundreds of years to the great storytellers of both Greece and Rome. And they started to really delve into texts based on rhetoric, that is, communicating text and communicating ideas. And some chaps like Monteverdi started setting it, or at least their version of what they thought it might have been, to music as a way of telling stories. And so that art form developed and its popularity endured and developed. And it's from those moments that opera was born. One of the main associations you've had was with the Bavarian State Opera. Can you tell me about working with them? Yeah, well, I was very fortunate enough to join the music staff of the Bavarian State Opera back in 2016. And it was the first time that I'd properly moved country and explored a new musical scene. And Munich, which is where the Bavarian State Opera is housed, has a very, very rich musical lineage. Mozart premiered some of his operas there. Wagner premiered some of his operas there, as did Strauss, who was uh, general music director there. So there's this very, for someone who's involved in opera, it was a, it was a very exciting and humbling experience to work in a theatre with that sort of history and that sort of lineage. Well, some more music now, and, uh, well, it has to be from the world of opera. What have you got for us here? Well, I chose an excerpt, in fact, the introduction or the overture, from the last opera that I worked on in Munich before I emigrated over to Australia. And it's Strauss's very famous opera, Der Rosenkavalier, And performing this is, in fact, the orchestra uh, that I worked with many times, the Bayerische Staatsorchester, the orchestra which plays for the opera there. But in a very old recording by one of their previous chief conductors, Clemens Krauss. Krauss conducting the Bayerische Staatsorchester for the Einleitung from Act One of Richard Strauss's Der Rosenkavalier, the choice of my guest in conversation today, keyboardist, musical director, Chad Kelly. So, Chad, what prompted the move to Australia? Well, I'm afraid it was love, uh, which is... It's as good enough reason as any. It really is. <laughs> it really is. the best one. My wife is Australian. She, she comes from Melbourne. And we met in London... Uh, sat in a pub, we struck up a conversation and the rest is history. 
uh, she moved to Munich with me. But um, there's this wonderful aspect which Australia seems to have. It has this draw power, which for Australians overseas who often go and explore, um, often in Europe, for example, at some stage in their life, most of them, if not all of them in a, in a way, have this sort of homing beacon which turns on. Sometimes that's family or sometimes that's just the the call of home. My wife felt that and it wasn't didn't take much persuading to get me to come and explore this new place. Fantastic. How do you compare, say, working with Opera Australia with the Bavarian State Opera? Uh, well, there are certain things that all opera houses and all opera companies have in common wherever you are in the world, both good things and bad things. Um, but I think the most important thing is that there's a spirit of collaboration, whether it be the ushers at the front door or the administrators in the office or the music staff coaching the singers or the stagehands pushing scenery or the set designers. Everyone's coming together. Everyone's working together to produce this one art form, this one piece of art, which is for people to enjoy. Mm, is that spirit of collaboration that you keep coming back to? Indeed. Yeah. Well, you certainly give back to the profession because uh, you've often had uh, some form of teaching or, or lecturing role. And I believe at the moment you're a guest lecturer at the University of Melbourne. What are the sort of things that uh, you like to try and impart to your students, you know, beyond the, the mere practical? Yeah, well, music making has been characterised by this passing on of information, this passing on of history from one generation to another, from one teacher to a pupil who in turn becomes a teacher to themselves. And I think that's a very important relationship to maintain. And it's one of the most rewarding aspects of uh, my career, and that's mm. working with younger people. And the thing that I always try to get out of my students is for them to ask questions and, crucially, to approach things with their eyes open and their minds open. Is there anything then you sort of wish you had have known, you know, when, when you were starting out, when, you know, when you were that choir boy in, in, in the cathedral? Um, not necessarily that choir boy as a cathedral, but I think when I was had aspirations to become the next James Bond, um, I wish that maybe I'd gone in and travelled a bit more and explored more, because one of the best things was moving abroad as a way of broadening my horizons and I wish I might have done that a dash earlier mm, I might have been a spy indeed you might have ended up being a spy after all travel does broaden the mind you know it does it does <laughs> yeah. now our final piece of music which we'll which we'll go out with sort of summarizes quite well because even though you're interested in historic works primarily you also as you sort of touched on before play a key role in developing new ones so tell us about what we're going to hear and, and your, your involvement with this uh, piece of music the composer Thomas Ades is a very well-known composer of this age and he's actually a very dear friend and I've had the very uh, the great honour and privilege uh, to work on one of his new operas, The Exterminating Angel, at the Salzburg Festival a few years back and we've in, enjoyed a, a long-lasting friendship ever since. And in fact... The very first concert I ever did in Australia when coming over here was with the Australian Chamber Orchestra and featured in that programme was one of Tom's pieces, O Albion, uh, which comes from his uh, string quartet suite, Arcadiana. And I thought it would be a really wonderful way to go out on. Well, Chad Kelly, thank you so much for joining me today. 
Thanks. It's been an absolute pleasure, Simon. Keyboardist and musical director Chad Kelly. He's guest directing the Australian Haydn Ensemble for CPE Bach Universe of Harmony, which is on at the City Recital Hall Angel Place on Sunday the 11th of December, and it's also on in Bathurst on Tuesday the 13th and Canberra on Wednesday the 14th. Get along to australianhaydn.com.au for more information and for tickets. Well, that's the program for today. Find us in your preferred podcast app by searching 2MBS In Conversation or visit 2mbsfindmusicsydney.com slash inconversation. I'm Simon Moore on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney.